evening, everybody. Hey, hey. Is everybody doing good? Doing great. Good. Great week of information, fellowship, lots of information, fire hydrant information. Well, my name is Greg Armstrong. I'm the director of enrollment at Northern Seminary. And uh, Northern is actually hosting this talk today, uh, Power to the People, with Dr. Dennis Edwards and Pastor Rose here. And so I uh, just wanted to introduce myself. I know I've talked to a number of people about things that we have going on at Northern Seminary in the Chicagoland area, one being our live streaming uh, 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 degree programs, uh, being able to study with Dr. Dennis or Dr. McNutt or Dr. Fitch. Uh, so we're excited about that. So any more information you want on that, uh, please. Um, I think they're still going. Yep. We can still have a conversation about that. But nevertheless, I want to jump right in because the last conversation just before you all came in was actually pretty awesome. So you're in for a good treat. So uh, I want to introduce, you probably already know, and it's in your books as well, but just to give kind of some bullet points of our facilitators today, Dr. Dennis Edwards, Associate Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, which we're very, very glad to have him. Uh, BS is in chemical engineering at Cornell University, MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, MA and PhD in biblical studies from Catholic University of America. Uh, Dr. Edwards has also served as a senior pastor uh, for uh, a few different ministries, uh, but uh, a lot of work done in Minneapolis at a multi-ethnic ministry there, uh, speaking on reconciliation and those types of great things. We also have Pastor Rosalie Norman, who serves as an associate pastor at Sanctuary Covenant Church. It's an urban multi-ethnic church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, she served there since 2010. Her BA in Biblical and Theological Studies from North Park University, Chicago. <laughs> MA in the Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. I mean, you know, Chicago and then West Coast. That made a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, when I go to the West Coast, I just want to stay there. Uh, and is a doctor of ministry candidate at Boston University. Uh, she served in urban multi-ethnic ministry and churches for almost 15 years, uh, ordained in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Just two great facilitators here. So get your questions ready, get your hearts open, and uh, let's just welcome these two. Well, Pastor Rose and I, we, we are excited to do this together because we were colleagues at the sanctuary in Minneapolis. Um, we overlapped for six years. You were there before me, and you're still there. <laughs> I moved on, but we were um, just glad to be able to do this together. So I, um, I'm going to take a moment to pray, and then uh, I want to set up our discussion for this afternoon. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good, and you're greatly to be praised. Lord, you love us with an everlasting love, and we're grateful. And Lord, as we wrestle with some very important and tough ideas throughout this whole weekend, um, there may be space that we're discouraged, that things aren't the way they should be. But at the same time, we're encouraged that you love us and you haven't given up on us. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, guide our conversation this afternoon. It would, be, it would honor you. It would be stimulating and, and provocative in a good way that we would want to be stimulated, as Hebrews says, to love and good deeds. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our time now in the name of Jesus. Amen. So um, we're calling this uh, conversation Power to the People. I actually am working on a book with that working title. And, and I confess that um, the, the thesis of it uh, has to do with wanting to hear more and receive more from folks who have been alienated and we'll talk about why that is uh, over time. So I've noticed that a lot of friends of mine who have written books, and some, some are friends, some acquaintances, some I don't know at all, but they often write books about race or about um, even power, and, and white people are still centered in the book. I mean, the idea is trying to get white folks to, do, to act differently and to be different and, uh, or to know more, and that keeps coming up a lot. Um, I think there's a lot of information that's out. And so I got to the point, especially have, having been, having served the church, I got to the point at the end of my time at that church, it was a difficult experience for me. I said to my wife, I said, shoot me if I ever work for white evangelicals again. I was uh, really um, hurt and uh, disappointed. And, and then when we did go to plant another church, which I didn't think I would ever do again, but I did in Southeast D.C., um, out of our home east of the Anacostia River, and we uh, we planted the church, and then a bunch of white folks started to come, and we thought, well, 
it's kind of not what we imagined, you know. Uh, so we had to have these meetings, a lot of discussion about about what that would what that would look like, because. I felt like in this movement of multicultural ministry, which seems to be a movement, legit, and we've been hearing a lot of people talk about it, and when I first tried to plant a church back in the 80s that was multicultural, um, it seemed like nobody was really interested. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, and I thought, man, the world is multicultural. But, um, but uh, as time went on, I see you know, this resurgence, this interest, but I often see um, that the power rests in, in white people. Uh, Corey Edwards' book, um, you, you've, been, we, you've been hearing from her protege a lot this weekend, uh, Onea? Um, Onea? She, she um, is studying under Dr. Edwards, Corey Edwards, and her book, Elusive Dream, you know, if some of you know it, she, she mentions in there that even, even uh, multiracial churches where white folks were in the minority and you even had people of color in leadership, they still deferred to the white folks in the congregation. White folks still had power in the congregation, even though they were smaller in number. So, so the churches, and her research bore this out, not just way back then when she wrote the book, but it continues to be borne out, that, that the churches adjust to defer to the white folks so as not to alienate them in the church. So white folks still yield this power, wield this power in the church. So uh, the thesis of, of my work here is to say that uh, I want people of color and women to, to recognize the power that comes from the gospel and to exercise that power and, and in a sense to not wait for white people to give us power. I hear sometimes say how we need to be empowered. We already have power is my, is my point and we need to exercise that, make our voices heard and show the world what we have learned uh, through the path that we've had been on uh, having been marginalized. So that's where the basic thesis uh, is coming from. So I, I say that, that the church, well, the, America has, but the church, by virtue of being American, I guess, uh, North American, has a power problem. So we talk about the power problem. I, I say, I give one quick example of the Bible Belt, right? I mean, I know maybe it's anachronistic a little bit now, but that part of our country that was the, known for its religiosity, also known for racism and sexism, and somehow, I'm not saying every person is a racist or sexist, but I am saying that there's something about how religion functioned to support those kinds of ideas. And should it? I would say no, um, but, but somehow they work together. And so the power problem is actually, in essence, a perception of the gospel problem. So, uh, not that the gospel is a problem, a perception of the gospel problem okay so it gets it gets manifested in in racism and I won't read the quotes that you have on the on the papers there but 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 this author refers to whiteness as a fiction and uh, and I think when we talk about racism at least I know I'm a child of the 70s so I mean I'm older but the um, but the way we talked about uh, racism and I grew up in all those Norman Lear shows that tried to you know, show you know, people being happy in their situation, you know, good times and all in the family and all that kind of stuff. But the, but the solution to racism was seen as this very individualistic willingness to say, you know, I'm, I'm okay with you, my neighbor, right? Which is, which is where I think the church has finally gotten to that place where you're happy to see diverse faces in the congregation. But it doesn't address issues of power, who gets to make decisions, what shapes the community. So, even when I got started in ministry, I started thinking that racism was about just how people, you know, whether we like each other or not. And some people still think that that's what racism is. So, so there's this myth that racism is only what the folks in the hoods, um, you know, the white hoods, or who carry tiki torches or whatever, that that's racist. So good people can't be racist. But if you think about racism as a, as a, as a, a structure and an influence, as a power, then people can tap into this power and not even realize that they're complicit in the problem. So I think many of you know that, and I think that that's a, uh, something we can talk about later, but that's, I want to articulate that as part of the problem. Not just society, I'm saying it's in the church too. And um, I've got too many stories here, but I'm careful, uh, Pastor. <laughs> so yeah, okay. <laughs> we have a little, a little inside joke. Um, but so Willie Jennings, who's written The Christian Imagination, gets at this, that even when uh, black folks are invited into Christianity, we're invited into a Christianity that's been kind of 
mediated to us through white folks. So in the earlier session, a brother even asked a question, a white brother who goes to an African-American church about the theology that he's getting from that church, and he was you know, disturbed. And, and I tried to make the point that, yeah, what that pastor got has been mediated to him through, through white folks. I mean, there's, there's a sense where black folks are just starting to do our own theological uh, work, and, and, and we've got to, and, and that has to happen. But in many ways, don't be surprised if the African-American church or, or other ethnic churches uh, or uh, ethnic minority churches are, um, are echoing what was taught to them through white folks. Don't be surprised. That's the way it happened. But more of us are starting to be able to articulate uh, theology. So I go on to say that we've got this power problem, and uh, I see it in race. And Pastor Rose is going to talk about how it can show up in, in gender uh, matters. Well, we certainly know um, just the overt ways in which sexism is present in the church. Uh, certainly in our society, as the Me Too movement um, erupted, and, um, and then um, not long after, of course, the Church Too movement happened. And so um, you can see that there's a um, quote around what misogyny is, uh, but I really want to highlight what Lisa Sharon Harper says about the church with sexism. And she says, we must allow ourselves to grasp the impact male domination has had on the witness of the church in the world. We must face it, own it, and grieve it. And we know from the many stories of um, abuse that women have um, experienced that this is a big problem for the church. Um, but there's also um, um, more nuanced ways in which sexism happens in the church as well, which I'm sure almost all of us sisters can attest to. Um, and so uh, Kristen Davis Eliason uh, gives this term benevolent sexism. And I think it's something that's so prevalent in the church. And she names it as benevolent sexism is sexism that is not overtly hostile. In fact, benevolent sexism usually comes in the form of a warm, friendly environment but it undermines opportunities for women due strictly to the fact that they are women. And I think that the church has become like really the perfect place for this to be, um, to fester in because uh, unfortunately in its toxicity. And um, I added some things that people have said to me as well as to um, just some sisters in ministry that just highlight what benevolent sexism is. Things like maybe if you showed a little more leg, attendance would go up. Or it's good you hired a male intern this time. People will feel a lot more comfortable with you leading when you have a man leading with you. Or, wow, you're a great preacher, but you know it's a sin for you to be a pastor, right? Or I'm so excited you'll be preaching. We need more women up there. But just be sure to keep your hair long. It looks much better that way. I mean, those are all things that I think the person who is speaking actually meant it as a compliment, but unfortunately, like, it's blatantly sexist, right? Hopefully we can see that. Um, and so I think that part of the, you know, power problem as well is um, sexism in both the large and extreme ways as well as some of these more subtle and nuanced ways as well. So... Thank you. I'm trying to do too many things, <laughs> hold the mic and charge my phone at the same time. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we argue for is uh, a more robust view of the gospel. I think one of the reasons why I'm at Missio or, and find uh, you know, some degree of connection here is that um, that's something that I think we, we sort of agree on. I don't know how many, and maybe that's what I needed in my life. After, <laughs> after a lot of work, I needed to be in a space where where people understood my terms, you know, <laughs> and, uh, um, but the, the idea, I mean, I've heard so many speakers already quoting Luke chapter four, right? Jesus own uh, mission statement or, or, or job description. Um, but, but the gospel, Paul calls the power of God. So that's why I want to get at that power notion. It's the power of God to those who, who exercise faith, who have faith, uh, in Jesus. And, uh, and so our typical evangelicalism has focused a lot on right belief. And I have argued, and I said this in another session that, we often have been people who want to convince other people that we're right, not always trying to convince people that we're good. And <laughs> when I mean good, I mean, you know, Christ-like. Of course, it not be perfect, but I mean trying to be like Christ. So 
we, we will argue over fine points of things with each other. And, and I think Dr. Fitch was saying that just the way we uh, posture ourselves toward each other, we, there's an antagonism. And he's written his whole book about that. But my point, though, is to say the right belief thinking sometimes misses the, the action that goes with the gospel because it's the story of Jesus. As Scott McKnight says, the story of Jesus Christ is a complete story, not just a Good Friday story. So we want to connect the, story, the gospel story to the life of Jesus. So the gospel is good news. I have the, the Isaiah quote there. But the reason why I put Isaiah up there is to see that when Jesus speaks from chapter, you know, in chapter 4 in Luke, that that's the images he's taking, right? He's taking the actual words from Isaiah 61. But the whole idea of good news and gospel come from Isaiah who connects uh, gospel to um, uh, good news, to salvation, connects it to the kingdom of God. Those ideas all are, are coming together. Uh, that's a theological thing we could spend more time, but I won't. But I think you'll, you're seeing the connection I'm trying to make, that the story of Jesus is connected to an Old Testament story. It's an Old Testament story about God's reign. It's an Old Testament story about uh, salvation. So when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he's picking up on those themes. So I did quote the passage there, but you've heard it so many times, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, read it again. So we'll go, if you can go on, Pastor Rose, thanks. So what I'm arguing for is a more robust gospel. A more robust gospel gets at um, not merely getting people to assent to some ideas that if they pray the, pray the prayer, then they go to heaven, but to get people to see the life of Jesus as part of the gospel. Uh, my friend Michael Gorman's book, Becoming the Gospel, he argues that in some sense, Jesus is the gospel, right? He's the gospel about Jesus, but it's the gospel that is Jesus in some ways, right? So we, um, but, but even these modern scholars like Scott McKnight, like N.T. Wright, like Michael Gorman, who have argued that the gospel is more than these sets of beliefs that I, assent, that I give assent to, we, um, we want to connect uh, the gospel to the person of Jesus. And I say those modern scholars are saying this, but people were saying this a while ago, including uh, an African-American, Howard Thurman. Now, Thurman's writing in the 40s, not too long after, after uh, Bonhoeffer, which we think about, right? So I'm, I'm listening on audio to this Bonhoeffer um, biography by uh, March, Charles, Charles March. And uh, it's talking about this, the, the scary time now. Um, with Hitler coming on the scene, but how German theologians and church practitioners were making it very clear that Jesus was not Jewish, right? They had to remove Jesus from Judaism to start making their, their case, right? And, and in many ways, we, we live with the legacy of that, of forgetting Jesus and his people. So even in our story of the gospel, we think of, you know, creation, fall, redemption, new creation or, or, or consummation. So we go from you know, fall all the way to the redemption of Jesus. There's nothing in there of the story of, of Israel. There's nothing in there about the life of Jesus, really. It gets right to Good Friday, right? So people like N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight and Michael Gorman, they say, well, no, there's the people of Israel in there that we have to keep in mind. Well, Thurman was saying that back in the 40s, and he said, it's a story. We, we have to keep Jesus connected to that story. He says, it's impossible for Jesus to be understood outside of the sense of community which Israel held with God. So he was Jewish. But he was also a poor Jew. So you heard Pastor Ephraim's message last night. Pastor Ephraim, um, when he was preaching on John 2, and uh, he was a senior pastor at the sanctuary. I followed him. And I was, ooh, he's a, he's a good communicator. But he, was, but he got at this point. Remember when he was talking about, uh, about the, the servants who were the ones that were empowered now to, to enact this miracle, that what you're seeing is that that whole world, that servant world, is the, is the world that's seeing uh, Jesus and enacting the work of Jesus. And in a sense, Jesus is connected to a marginalized space. And we often have this, you know, of course, our pictures of Jesus, right? I mean, I could go on and on, but I won't. But, I, but, you, but you know it. I mean, even our literal art of Jesus was, was taking him away from, from his people. Um, so Thurman says Jesus was a member of a minority group in the midst of a larger dominant and controlling group. And that's something we want to keep in mind when we think about gospel. This should be empowering. And that's, that, that's Thurman's point in the whole book, Jesus and the Disinherited, as he writes a book to people whose backs against the wall, is to say, we have a savior who can relate to our situation, right? So as we move, move toward a more robust gospel, I think, uh, actually one more, thanks. 
Okay, that's a quote from Gorman. You got it in the paper. I won't, I won't read it to you. But he's making a similar point that I'm trying to make, that the gospel is power of God, but it's connected to Jesus and the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus' people. All right. Thanks. So Pastor Dennis just shared this vision uh, from Luke 4 about the gospel as good news. And it is specifically good news to the marginalized. So I want to, um, now, now that we have this vision of a more holistic and robust gospel, one that doesn't take Jesus' humanity and lived experience out from it, I want us to ask a simple question this afternoon. If we continue to settle for a repressed gospel, a gospel for and by the powerful that continues to distort Jesus and his mission, then my question is, what do we miss out on? Or what do we miss without the voices of the marginalized? So first I want to suggest that a natural outcome of a more robust gospel, which we're trying to get at from Luke 4, is its authenticity. That you'll see here on the screen a quote from Howard Thurman. Uh, and he says this, he says, The basic fact is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher and thinker, appears as a technique of survival for the oppressed. That it became, through the intervening years, a religion of, of the powerful and the dominant, used sometimes as an instrument of oppression, must not tempt us into believing that it was thus in the mind and the life of Jesus. So what Thurman is saying, I believe, is that the power of the apparent powerless is its authenticity. That the gospel is most robust when it is authentic to its intended person, um, purpose. So if we want this more robust gospel, then I offer that we follow the marginalized towards th that more authentic, subversive vision as it was intended to be, so that it is, again, good news for the marginalized, as Luke 4 suggests. So, so I want to ask again what we miss out without the voices of the marginalized. But instead, I want to ask it a different way. What if we asked instead... What do we gain with the voices of the marginalized, right? Because here's a helpful shift toward that more robust and holistic gospel, which is, again, I think, is authenticity. So I want to suggest three ways in which I think that, the, that there is power in the apparent powerlessness, um, in the apparent powerless, um, is the first, um, uh, a more authentic leadership, second, uh, an authentic witness, and then third, an authentic mission. So you'll see um, in your handout, Charles Mills, who's a Jamaican philosopher, he says that in understanding the workings of a system of oppression, a perspective from the bottom up is more likely to be accurate than from the top down. So as Charles Mills um, states in his book, The Racial Contract, what he's doing is he's using standpoint theory to support his claim. And I think it's valuable for us to understand what this theory is and how it can empower us, the apparent powerless, and specifically this idea of authentic leadership. So standpoint theory. So standpoint theory is the awareness of one's social location. It's the critical understanding of your standpoint. Um, or simply put, it's your viewpoint in which you see the world. It's the place and the space in which you view the world and how you understand your role in the world. And what standpoint theorists suggest is that if we want to understand oppression, as Mills states, then those who have been oppressed have the most authentic voice to lend in that work. That they will be the most authentic leaders towards our aim of this robust gospel. So in using standpoint theory uh, and this methodology, it promotes a stronger objectivity. That's what the theory kind of um, uh, foundation of it. It's this objective lens in which you can see the system. And it's a stronger objectivity that the church needs as a sound prophecy for the future of the church for the sake of the world. That's what we've been talking about this whole time. And it answers, I believe, more aptly questions of toxicity in Christianity. Again, these misuses of power, abuse, in short, sin. So if we want to uproot the sins of, of racism, classism, sexism, 
who's going to have the personal experience to speak to that? Or who will have the biblical lens to interpret that? Or who will have the personal, um, the prophetic voice to lead such a movement? A more objective standpoint is the power that, of the authentic leadership that the marginalized have. Because when the dominant culture is given this ubiquitous power and their viewpoint becomes the norm, then again that gospel is reduced, it's repressed. We don't see Jesus anymore as this poor Jew. We see him in a different way. We take that out. And in short, I believe that we miss the original context and purpose of the gospel, which is what Thurman was stating. So if our aim is a more robust, holistic gospel, then we need the voices and perspectives of the marginalized. We need our leadership moving us towards the good news for all. Second, um, when we have the marginalized leading us, I believe that we gain an authentic witness. One of the most well-known stories in the Bible of the pursuit of, of freedom um, from oppression, of course, is the story of the Exodus. And no doubt, Moses was a strong leader in that pursuit, right? Of course. But when we take a wider look, a wider look at Exodus, we see that before Moses was even on the stage, before he was even moving uh, that movement along, that there was a pre preparation that was happening before him. We see that before liberation even took place, there were others who were, who were um, laying that foundation for him to then move into. And that's found in Exodus 1. In verses 6 through 22, we see the midwives, Shifra and Pua, who were commanded by Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew baby boys as they were being born. But because of their deep devotion to God, this is what it says in the text, they disobeyed. They did something different. So these midwives who are positioned in this apparently powerless place in Pharaoh's empire, they use their position that they had, their standpoint, to lay this foundation of liberation that then again Moses would lead into. And as I just talked about standpoint theory and how it provides this authentic vision of leadership, there's also this empowering notion within this theory. It's called epistemic advantage. And the epistemic advantage is this idea that states that when the marginalized are the most authentic voices of change because they have a double vision of sorts um, in their leadership. The epistemic advantage is the idea that the oppressed have knowledge of the practices of both their own context and their experience as well as the knowledge of their oppressors. That therefore they can provide the most authentic perspective therefore the most authentic witness. So epistemic advantage describes how people of color and how women have a much clearer understanding of how the power structure works in a society. They have a clearer understanding as well as how to disrupt that structure. And we saw an example last night of epistemic advantage. Um, as Pastor Ephraim was preaching uh, about Jesus turning the water into wine, at the end, Pastor Bruxy came up after him and he stated that he'd never seen the text in that way before. That is an example of epistemic advantage. So if I were to take this term, epistemic advantage, and place it in dialogue with theology, then I'd propose that epistemic advantage is the assertion that we need marginalized voices to inform the gospel and the church's mission toward liberation because without their voices, without our voices, we can't fully name the sin that the church is steeped in. We need their voices to name that for us. So in looking at Shifra and Pua, we see that they understood the workings of their social location and as a result, they made this bold decision to let the Hebrew baby boys live. They were strategic in disobeying the oppressive powers because they understood the power structure from their perspective. Shifra and Pua also remind us that if we don't have the perspective of the marginalized, then we can't break down those dominant and oppressive systems. In short, we can't outwit Pharaoh without their voices. Shifra and Pua's story doesn't just elevate and support women's, um, women's power and their leadership in an abstract way, but it is a story of women's actual power from God 
Amen. And finally, marginalized voices provide the church with a vision of authentic mission. Um, you can see on the screen and in, in your handouts, um, Rosemary Radford Ruther has this beautiful vision of what the mission of the church is. And she calls it this redeemed community of equals. And this vision is very compelling for us. But I argue that it is unattainable without the marginalized leading us in it. As we talked about standpoint theory, I think one of the most compelling aspects of it is the truth that the, the powerful cannot lead in this subversive work because they're so ingrained in the structure of power. And it's hard for them to give a, a, a genuine critique, an authentic critique. Because I know certainly in my experience as a white woman serving in an urban multi-ethnic church with justice and reconciliation at the forefront of our mission, that I've learned from uh, sitting under the leadership of Pastor Dennis, just how great the degree to which my whiteness is normative and how it's totally invisible to me. Because of course, whiteness is the standard, it's the rule. It's where all the things are measured, it's so pervasive which I think just simply underscores the need for the apparent powerless to lead us in power. Because I believe our work of the church is really to excavate the normative exclusion of the marginalized, the normative ways we've excluded people. So I wanna leave you with an encouragement. I think before uh, we believe that, I think we utilize our power best when we share it truthfully from our experience, truthful, truthfully from our um, experience of oppression. And when we call the church to be something different, to be this authentic vision through our leadership, I think we'll make a much longer lasting uh, impact of that more robust gospel when we do that. And I think it's hugely significant that Shifra and Pua are named women in the Old Testament. That means something really significant, that they are named women in the Old Testament. And yet we don't know Pharaoh's name. So in the collective memory of the Hebrew people, it was Shifra and Pua, their power and their story that lived on in their collective memory. And I think, and I believe that it's our stories of the, the, the marginalized as well that will live on in the collective memory of the 21st century church when we are obedient to God's call to use our God-given power. Wow, thank you, Pastor Rose. And that, that was awesome. I, um, I'm just going to say a couple of things and then we'll open up for questions. Is that the, the point um, that I get from that, uh, and thank you, is it resonates with something I've been thinking about from uh, my work in First Peter. So, so I wrote a commentary in First Peter, and part of the thing that kind of struck me, especially as I was wrestling with his words to slaves, which bothered me a, you know, a great deal. I'm struggling with this as I'm trying to write the commentary. It, it hit me as I was going through of how, you know, he's so quick to connect the slaves' um, um, refusal to retaliate to what he does call unjust, to, he, he connects that clearly to the, to the life of Jesus. So he says that you are, you know, following his example. And, and then he does it similarly with women when he talks about women and their wordless witness is how some translations say their wordless witness. So, so women who were of low status in that society, slaves who have practically no status in the society, become now the examples of what Jesus is like. And, and so we were joking in between the break, I said how if you ever look at those old like British shows and stuff with the hierarchy and things or shows that are set in the uh, Jim Crow South, that the people who know the most of what's going on in the household are the servants, right? It's always the people who are on the bottom. They know, they, they, they get the bigger perspective. And in some ways, the marginalized folks that Peter is talking to become our example. So my, my, Hope And I, I started out by saying we were trying to decenter whiteness, and, but we knew being at Missio that, um, and, and maleness that we would still probably be talking to mostly white uh, men. But the, but the point was we're trying to say that God is, is doing something as we, um, and, we, and wants to do even more if, if we 
um, use our voices. And so that's, that's what we're trying to, in essence, say. But we're not just saying that because it's a political thing. We're saying it because that's a biblical thing. It seems to be that's the way of Jesus. So that's, that's the case that we're trying to make. I end what, by talking about these ideas that come out of Philippians 1, 27 to 2, 11. That's the hymn of Christ that follows after Paul's encouragement for them to function as one people. I, I can say a lot about that passage, but I won't. I'll just say at the hymn, that mutuality that's in there, right? Consider others better than yourself. Uh, it's been written a lot, and my friend Michael Gorman, who's got that form cruciformity back in action, uh, cross-like uh, behavior, he talks about that self-emptying there as he calls it Paul's master story, that this is the way Paul not only operated, but he saw his communities operating and models the way of Jesus. So that's, so in saying that, my message to white folks is that there could possibly be some fear in African-Americans leading. Now, I did serve a church on Capitol Hill years ago, and, uh, and I was an associate at a church in uh, what was called, you know, then Chocolate City, uh, but it was a church that was about 90-some percent white, and I was an associate there, and I thought I knew what I was getting myself into, but anyway, it got complicated. But, uh, but when the senior pastor left, I was an interim, and then they actually did vote me in to be lead pastor. But it bothered some folks to maybe the ones who didn't vote yay, but um, the words were, Dennis is concerned about city folks, he won't be concerned about us. City folks became a circumlocution to, to, to mean black. And most of the folks were living over here. So I know people are calling this DC, this isn't DC, this is Virginia, right? <laughs> <laughs> DC is over there. But anyway, so, <laughs> and, uh, but the reality of it was most of the folks were living in Arlington and Alexandria and the folks who lived in D.C., largely African-American, were not, frankly, not welcome. And I kept trying to push us to be more welcoming. And I didn't think that that was an anti-Jesus thing. But it was surprising how, how I got uh, beat up for that. And uh, to the point that I just, I mean, went through a lot of issues. But, but so what I'm trying to say is it doesn't mean that, I mean, the kingdom's big enough. It doesn't mean when you start to center the voices of people of color and women that somehow others lose. It's not a zero-sum game, right? So it means that the kingdom starts to look a little more equitable, and that's a word we've been hearing a lot in the plenaries. So that's, that's the way I want to end this. The mutuality and cruciformity uh, is not a losing proposition, except that one loses one's selfishness on the pathway to gaining something better. All right, well, we're going to stop here and, uh, and see if you've got any questions or comments or observations, and uh, we're just glad to be able to share with you. I wish more people were in the room, but that's okay. You know, it's close to dinner time. So, but anyway, honestly, does anybody have any questions or comments or thoughts? Yes. So specifically around the Philippians passage, I feel like coming from a church that was very unsupportive of women and from a church that was trying to be multicultural but was actually white, that that passage in particular, but then just that concept in general of pulling yourself out, got unequally applied to women and people of color. And so it would be said from up front, everyone would feel uncomfortable because the music's not their music. But really, the white people were pretty comfortable with the music. It was their music. And then for women, like that often being pushed, like that they needed to not consider the equality with men something to be grasped. Um, and so they should pour themselves out. And so I've been wrestling with that scripture a lot lately, wow. and I've been wondering if maybe actually that passage is more for the people that have more power and privilege than it is for the people that don't. I, I I say yes, and, but part of the reason why I say yes is not just because of the way I feel, but is I think that that's the tenor, right? Because once he sets up the, the, the challenge, he goes to Jesus, right? And so he goes to Jesus to say, who denied to consider equality with God something to be exploited for personal gain. So, so he's already talking to this notion of privilege, right? So, so I say that yeah, obviously that could look different in different places, but I'd say that the burden, the onus is on the, the folks with privilege. Now, Pastor Rose has taught me a lot over the years, and I was, I was just so grateful to have worked with her in that I, I, I don't know what my blind spots are as a tail end of the baby boom um, guy, but I, I'm grateful to God that I wanted to know. So, so Pastor Rose has introduced me to writings, introduced me to thinking, introduced me to to how I could even ask the right kind of questions or think of the right way to minister to people in our congregation, particularly women. And, and, uh, and how, 
I mean, that only makes me better, right? So I don't think, so in a sense, I, I need to give up. The other thing that I'll say, that I don't know if she would say, but, um, but when she first told me that God had called her to pastoral ministry, she wasn't serving in a pastoral role. So I said, well, hey, let's call you pastor. I said, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? So, and then I pushed her to preach. And I think she's one of the best preachers I've heard now. And I, so, so I say that to mean that my thing was, was it might, and Pastor Jorge said it this morning, Pastor George said it this morning, that it meant, you know, where he was preaching almost all this time was that he said, no, I need to, I need to open this pulpit up. And, and I thought I had this privilege. I finally got to a church that could pay me and that I could preach every week. And I said, but Pastor Ru, we need, we need her voice in the congregation. And I had a couple other associates too. I said, we need their voices in the congregation. So, so I'm grateful. So I think that passage is hitting at the folks who have the relative privilege. And I think that's the point of talking about Jesus' ultimate privilege, right? I mean, he's God, but he lays aside his prerogatives. So thank you. Uh, other comments or questions, Pastor Andrew? Yeah, just a question about, uh, if, like, definitely with, you know, gender and race, the marginalization, giving voices, I, yeah. I, I'm totally on board with. But yeah. it feels like in our culture now, there's more and more groups that claim marginalization. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so how do we accommodate in a wise way mm -hmm. um, to give them the voice for do you and how? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I started on the project because of who I am. So it starts out there that I, I, I won't pretend to know how, what that looks like for others. And I asked Pastor Rose to help me because I didn't want to speak for women, right? So I can't speak for other groups as well. But I would say that some of the practices in church, I don't think need to be threatened by conversation. You know, and I, and I, I, I've seen, I mean, I've been a victim of that. The churches that won't talk about certain things, right? So we can't, there's never a forum. I'm not saying that every sermon has to be about X or Y, but there has to be some kind of forum where people are able to share and voice and, 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 and uh, communicate uh, their, where they're feeling and how they're feeling. Uh, but, and sometimes the facts simply speak for themselves. Not everybody who claims to be marginalized is marginalized. I mean, that's happening now, right? As white people say there's reverse racism, all this stuff. I mean, we can, you can document that that's not a real thing, right? So, so um, but at the same time, you know, as Bruxy challenged us last night, you know, I listen even to the folks I don't agree with, but at the, and, and I love as best I can. So I want to make space to hear. But I think we have to then, and this is one thing I love about being Anabaptist is that there is a certain sense where congregational discernment should be helpful in this. My fear, though, I have to admit, my fear is in congregational discernment is the congregation all looks a particular way. We're not going to discern very well. So, um, but anyway, that's, that's kind of my quick answer to that. So, thanks. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's right. You said you had two. I'm sorry. You said. I just don't want to Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, this one's a little bit more specific to the women issue. Um, and so after Me Too, um, our church leadership team had talked about developing some policy around that topic. Um, at the time, I was uh, the only woman that was going to be at that meeting that night. So I said I couldn't like do that. Like I can't be the only woman talking about this topic at a meeting. Um, so instead, the next step we took was to add more women to our leadership team. Um, and that was fantastic. But we haven't really revisited that topic. Um, in aftersight, I was like, that was the right first step, like mm -hmm. to have more women that were sharing power. But I'm really curious if you all have thoughts on policy around that, because that's so much mm -hmm. we haven't come back to, wow. or other ways to respond to huh. Me Too well in our own conversations. Yes. Wow. That's and if you haven't, that's okay. Yeah. I just wish that I had wow. people talking about it. You know, it's funny, I'm not, I'm not serving a church now. I'm just trying to think in my seminary context what we. What we have, I know there's been some work. Uh, in fact, we've just posted something. I wasn't part of the discussion, but we just posted something. But it was more general about harassment and some and some things like that. More general policy, you know. Um, but uh, I don't have anything specific except that I I like that strategy of having more folks around the table and discerning. Oh man, I'm I'm at an age where too many times I was the only black person in the room, and you feel this weird burden. For one, to not offend the white folks, to speak for all the black folks, to, to try to make things, you know, right, and, uh, and it's, it's really wearisome, you know. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think know. it's smart to go slow in terms of waiting until there's more women, for sure, so you're not the only one there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, certainly, um, at least in our denomination, the Covenant Church, we have a ministry that supports other churches. It's called AVA, Advocates for Victims of Abuse. And potentially that could be a helpful resource because they help churches build policies around things. That's just right. Like that. That's right. So it's called Advocates for, Advocates for Victims of Abuse through the um, Evangelical Covenant Church. Mm -hmm. Another one is Grace, um, Godly Response. Yes. They, they're amazing. They're expensive. They're so good. It's really expensive. Oh, really? Okay. Very good. Thank and you. And if you email me, I have most of Grace's stuff from a children's ministry perspective, if you want it. So, yes. Yes. Dr. Edwards, um, you started saying that you'd rather, you told your wife you'd rather die than work with a team again. Can um, <laughs> <laughs> I honor that? Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to, to a handful of white men? Yeah, I'm going to cry, but yeah. yeah, the white men in the room that have, yeah, um, how can I prevent that, or how can I? Yeah, thanks. I, I think um, <laughs> I appreciate the question. I kind of make me want to cry. I think the um, times are a bit different, so I'm grateful for that. You know, there's been a bit of a learning curve. There's more writing out. There's more reflection, and coming from white folks too. And I have appreciated that. But I think the thing that probably hurt me the most was when my observations, born out of a lived experience, I lived close to the church. I worked with African-American families. I had a perspective, but it was just dismissed. Like, you, you don't, you're not really seeing what's going on. Now, that's, now that's a small piece of a bigger thing, but that, was, but that sense that my voice didn't even matter, even though you gave me the title pastor, but my voice didn't really matter. Um, uh, it hurt, and, and for me to call out something that was wrong, I became the bad guy for calling it out. And so I would say uh, what I, maybe what I can say to my white sisters and brothers is, but particularly my white brothers at this point, is, is, um, is if the Philippians 2 thing seeps in a bit, then, then maybe just stop to hear a little bit. I mean, this is what was happening with Black Lives Matter, right? I mean, people were saying, at least listen to why. Listen to why Kaepernick puts his knee down. You know, listen, at least just listen. Even if you don't agree at the end of the day, stop for a moment and listen. And I felt like that wasn't happening for, for me. And I shouldn't say felt like. It wasn't happening. I'll just be honest. That it's hard for me at times to, I tend to soft pedal stuff that people did to me, and I don't know why. But, <clears throat> but, um, but my encouragement is, is to, um, I don't ask white people to empower women or ethnic minorities. I, I stop using that terminology because we have power, which is part of the reason why we want to write this book. But I think the idea I'm trying to say is at least make space, if I could take Dave Fitch's word, you make space for God's presence to be recognized in, the, in these other folks. And even though if they don't, are not articulating my experience, rather than diminishing it and saying that's not happening, dig deeper, right? Find out why, you know, the people of color experience. I'll give one quick example. I was, I was preaching at a Christian camp. I used to do that a lot because I needed money, and my kids got a free week of camp. But it was this camp up in, in, uh, in New Hampshire, and it was almost always white. And, uh, so, and I had some bad experiences there. I mean, a bunch of white kids chased my six-year-old son around, and, and he couldn't figure out what in the world they're chasing him for. He asked him, why are you chasing me? He said, oh, because you're black. They're chasing him and throwing rocks at him. I'm like, this is crazy. Christian camp, right? Anyway, so I meet this, this family up there, and the guy says, you know, he had a black family leave his church. He said, because the, the father left and said, I don't want to be white to be a Christian. And the guy said, look, I don't know why he said that. He said, we just do things by the Bible. And so that's the problem, right, is that folks who say they're doing things by the Bible are not realizing that their practice of the scripture is also culturally informed, right? So when somebody makes an observation, at least to stop and say, oh, how are you experiencing what we're trying to do here? So that's just my basic encouragement. Thank you for the question, though. Appreciate it. Um, I think we're there. Almost. Well, 525. We got time. I thought it was 530. I'm sorry. I thought it was almost done. Uh, any other questions, comments? I, um, just oh. the gospel being more robust. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was um, disabled. I've only been disabled for eight years. So I was a white guy. <laughs> and now I'm kind of a 
a minority in a, yeah. in a yeah. position. It's like, I, I, I can see yeah. both sides. Kind yeah. of, um, I, I went through some really dark times. I do. Um, yeah. He, he had just started a church six months before my accident. So we were walking through those dark times. And he told me, because I'm an introvert, I'll just be still and put a downward spiral in my mind. Um, but I needed a trigger to snap me out of my dark times, my, my depression. Wow. Something that I could turn to, wow. that I had before I got there, to, to turn to. And, um, and so the gospel became bigger for me because um, where I turned was the incarnation. That God. Uh, became flesh, right? So, so God goes from all-knowing, all-powerful, limiting himself to a baby, mm -hmm. right? Like, he can't even feed himself. He can't. And so for me, that was God disabling himself. Mm -hmm. um, but he went a lot bigger stuff. I went from walking to not walking. <laughs> he went from God to baby, mm -hmm. right? And so um, just this idea of this more robust gospel that I didn't see until I entered the world of disability. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the voices, that, like you're talking about, yeah. When we hear the other voices and hear John too in a different light, yeah, uh, and, and have the voices from, from different. <laughs> well, God bless you, brother, and thank you so much. I um, yeah, it means a lot to me. I I uh, heard one of the speakers when she was talking about uh, the you know basic our church is still for you know the good-looking, the able-bodied, the wealthy, white, and and we still, we, we just, we still are missing the way of Jesus. But I like the way you said incarnation, because I think that's embedded in the Philippians 2 as well, right? It's, it's, it's a becoming the slave, becoming the baby, vulnerable man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, well, any last uh, comment? Well, let me just, oh, Pastor Rose, could you just offer us a blessing to, as we leave? Thank yeah. you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the space that you've created. God, I thank you that your spirit is here. Mm. Lord, I just humbly ask that we would, uh, that you'd give us a vision of your more robust gospel, Lord. God, allow us to take uh, what Pastor Dennis has shared and to let it just seep deeply in our hearts, deep in our bones, that we'd live it out in a more authentic way, Lord. God, um, I just thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for um, just the people who can draw out your word in the ways that we need to, Lord. God, I thank you for all the people who are here. Ask that you just bless them as they go, as they bring so many questions to uh, Miss You Alliance, Lord. I just share in the questions with them, Lord, and thank you that you have us on a journey. God, we ask that you'd continue just to hold us gently as we continue on this journey to strive to live out this robust gospel that you've given us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for Thank coming. Thanks. Thanks.